0: It's great to be in worship with you. If you're um, new here, welcome to In Town, and um, I'd love to meet you after the service. If uh, if you're willing, I'll be in the back, uh, or actually at the front door, um, and would love to say hello. If you want to avoid that, there's a back door that you can probably find over here. um, But hope you'll come back sometime, and love to make your acquaintance. Um, If you are new, we're going through a series on the ABCs of In Town. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What is in town all about? And this morning we're looking at the idea of seeking, that we are people in process, that we're a church that is full of imperfect people, that we don't have it all figured out, that we're not better than the church down the street, we're not cooler or hipper. Certainly you can look at me and see that. Um, We're just trying to meddle through life and do the best we can and follow Jesus, and um, part of our following is seeking this mission statement and trying to fulfill this mission statement that In-Town Presbyterian Church is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. And this morning, we're wrapping up four sermons on that idea of seeking. What does that look like? And we're going to take the um, idea of breathing underwater that life is hard, and we're trying to do the best we can with um, God's help. And this is our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him, and He began to teach them. He said, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.'" You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Did not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was an optical illusion making its rounds on Facebook this week, and I avoided it all week, but it kept coming up in my feed, so I finally opened it up and tried to figure it out. It was this uh, brick wall, but there was something else in the picture that you were supposed to see, and I looked. And I looked and I stared, and I never saw it. Anyone else figure it out? Anyone? Okay, good. Well, I'm not alone. I couldn't figure it out. Well, spoiler alert, fingers in your ears if you want to go home today and look it up. But it was a cigar that was poked in the wall and was sticking out. And I had to look it up. I went and found an article that just explained what to look for, and once you knew what to look for, it was obvious. And it was so obvious that you couldn't miss it. You couldn't unsee it. It was before hidden in plain sight, but afterwards you couldn't not see it. The Beatitudes are an astonishing source of spiritual insight, but you have to know what to look for. The very heart of the gospel is sort of hidden in plain sight in the Beatitudes. Now, I've wrestled with this sermon probably more than any in a long time, because this is the second foray into the Beatitudes in the last three weeks, though we only looked at the first couple uh, three weeks ago. And when I saw this on the sermon calendar, I was a little bummed, I was a little disheartened, because I thought, haven't we covered this? Is there anything else to say that hasn't already been said? Can I come up with anything new or novel? But I also thought you know, there is something more to say, something that I haven't fully said or haven't said well enough, and it took me the better part of the week to figure out what it was. And I think here is what it is, that we've been trying to detail the ABCs of in-town, looking at various parts of Matthew in isolation from The rest of Matthew and, in fact, from the rest of the Bible, and that's okay. You you have to start somewhere, right, and we're going to continue to do that. But what is informing our read and our interpretation of these parts? There's a prior assumption, there's a prior commitment that is fundamental to how we're reading Matthew. You see, we all come to the Beatitudes, we all come to every part of the text, uh, every part of the Bible with an interpretive grid with colored lenses. We can't step out of our context and out of our community, out of our theological presuppositions completely. And so, the parts of the Bible, the parts of the Beatitudes are interpreted by our understanding of the whole. And every church has one. Every church has colored lenses, an interpretive grid, theological presuppositions about what the Bible is all about. And so, ABCs and all, that's our job, that's our goal, is is to figure out what is ours? What is our interpretive grid? And so, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit as we look at this particular text, but to say, what is before? What prior assumptions are we making? Well, what is, and maybe this is the best way to go about this, what is at the heart of Christianity? How would you answer that question? Is it Jesus? Is it salvation? Is it the church? Is it the kingdom? Is it justification? Is it rules? Is it, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's at the center of Christianity, what's at the heart, and maybe that's why you're here this morning, and we're glad to have you. Well, how we answer that, what is at the heart of Christianity, informs how we read the Bible. And what about the Bible itself? What is it? What kind of book is it? Is it an instruction manual? Is it a book of ethics? Is it a theological reference book? Is it a storehouse of truth or facts about ultimate reality? Well, what if those have an aspect of truth, that the Bible in some way is all of those things, but what if it's something more essential? What if while reading the Beatitudes or any other part of the Bible, We view the Bible more essentially as a love letter, as a love letter from God. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is the beginning of or part of a love letter from God to his people. And he says, blessed, or I have wonderful news, For the poor, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry, the pure, the persecuted. And we then begin to ask, how does this express God's love to His people, to His creatures, to you, to me? Aren't these saying that God has you on His heart and He longs to comfort you in your brokenness? To meet you with His grace in all of your broken glory. If the Bible is essentially a love letter, if that's our grid, then Jesus is not first of all teaching about how one finds their way to God, but how the love at the center of the universe has found His way to us. That when anyone raises their hands to heaven, they don't find first a judge or a deity to be appeased, but they find the one who is love at the very center of their person. So let me tell you the story again, the story of the Bible, the love letter, as it were, that leads up to the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes are a part of. Love precedes the Bible. Love precedes even creation itself. Love has its origins in the character of a triune God where perfect love is shared in this sacred community of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That that community, that communion of love existed before there was anything, before there was creation. And their love, true love, by its nature always reaches out. It always seeks out additional objects to bestow their love upon, its love upon. So rather than be content sharing love with one another, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... But it reached out to create others so that others could enter into this sphere of intimacy and receive this transforming love. And so the creation story, Genesis 1, Genesis 2 and 3, the creation story, the beginning of all things, the opening chapters of Genesis isn't, first of all, a scientific account. It's a love poem. It's the beginning of a love letter. And how does it begin? Do you remember? The Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. What is that an image of? What would people who read that love poem would have thought of? Well, they would have thought of this image of a mother bird nurturing new life that was forming under her. It was hovering over the face of the deep, excited about the new creation that was about to happen. And it involves this love poem of creation, not only the earth and the sky and the sea, but you and me. Creation was God's plan for friendship. Creation was God's plan for companionship. You see, the one who has every right to say, I will enslave you. I will make you love me. You will serve me instead, says, come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. You are created for relationship with the head over heels in love with you, Creator. And when He looks at you, He doesn't first of all see sinner, but He first of all sees friend, loved one, son, daughter. But here's the problem. And we know this from our everyday relationships, right, because relationships are often made up of partners with unequal affections. And the story continues from creation to tell us that our spiritual parents spurned the love of God for what they perceived as freedom. And instead of intimacy that they had perfectly with God and with one another, what they experienced in seeking that perceived freedom was alienation and estrangement and separation, not only from God, but from their true selves, that their humanity began to be broken, that they began to see division even in their own affections. And the story is told in Scripture as the story of a couple in perfect intimacy with God who gives this up for the chance of self-governance, for the chance to do life on their own terms. And that's always the thing that kills relational love. It's not bad behavior. It's not mistakes. It's not failure. But it's seeking autonomy. It's seeking isolation. It's self-love. And their experience is depicted by this idea, this image of nakedness, that they're totally seen and totally exposed. And just moments prior, that was a comfort to them because they knew God loved them without end. And they were naked before Him and before one another without any shame, and now they go and they hide. But here's the good news. Because the story is a love story, God says to them, Where are you? Where have you gone, dear ones? He doesn't forcefully gather them into His courtroom to judge them, but He goes out to find them. And what does He do? He covers them. He covers their nakedness. He doesn't shame them for having this fear, but He covers them. And in that we see a hint of the gospel. As is His practice throughout the rest of the Bible, God is reaching out to people in their shame and in their nakedness and covering them. The blood on the door in Egypt the boundaries of the promised land, circumcision, priests and prophets, animal sacrifices, and finally the incarnation. God is seeking out people who are hiding, who are not even looking for His grace, and He is bestowing it upon them, and He is covering them. Everything before, however, the incarnation is inadequate. They are signs of what is coming, but they are not the real thing. And so at the point in the story, as all great love stories do, at the point in the story when things look most grim, where we think humanity is fully forgotten, that they are made for love, God Himself comes. Jesus enters our world as the personification of love to reveal the character of God, to cover our nakedness once and for all. And he comes telling us of a reconciling father who runs out to meet his wavering children. You remember this story, the story of the prodigal son? The one who, like that first couple, had run away from the protection of the father? And how does God respond? In our Bible, it has a heading that this is the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really about the father, isn't it? It's about the character of the, pro- of the father, and the real prodigal of the story is God himself. He's the extravagant one. He is lavish with his love and his forgiveness. You know the story, the younger brother squanders his Father's wealth, his father's name, he is reckless, he is irresponsible. And the only reason he comes back to his father is not because he's repentant, not because he's brokenhearted, it's because he needs to eat. And he knows that even the slaves in his father's household eat better than he is. And so he comes back, his tail between his legs, destitute. And he is walking to his father's estate, and his father runs out to meet him. He runs out to meet him and embraces him. The father doesn't see, first of all, sinner, errant son, reckless. How could you? But he sees son. He sees a needy one. He sees one who has lost everything, and his grace flows to the needy. His grace flows to the weak. And that's the good news of the Beatitudes if that's the backdrop, if that's the foreground, then that's what the Beatitudes are telling us as well, that it's not the strong, it's not the self-assured, the powerful who find grace, that grace is hidden in plain sight where only the needy can find it, only those whose spiritual poverty provides the right interpretive grid to find it. The Beatitudes aren't the way to please God, but they represent the type of broken heart that God loves to fix. It's a call to intimacy. As a husband, I've heard, "Where are you?" many times. Where are you, Katie? Has sensed a distance between us, a relational gap, a lack of intimacy, and I uh, that she'll come to me and say, "Well, I feel disconnected, and I need more togetherness. And what's my natural?" inclination. Well, it's self-defense. I think she's critiquing me because I haven't done a good enough job as a husband, husband, and I start itemizing, if not verbally, at least in my own mind. Well, here's how I served you. Didn't you notice that I cleaned the kitchen last night? Don't you remember I came home early so we could have dinner as a family? Didn't you notice that I cleaned out the car? Isn't it nice and beautiful and clean? You see, I see her request for intimacy as an indication that I had done something wrong, so what do I do? I withdraw, I hide, I sulk, I pout, I isolate, and I reason, well, I'll never be able to make her happy. But you see, that request is a request, it's not a critique. She wants more of me. She's not mad at me. Well, sometimes she is, but in this circumstance, (laughs) she's sad that she doesn't get more of me, and that's what she's asking But I interpret it as, you haven't done a good enough job. The Bible is a love story. It's not a critique. It's a request. It's an invitation to intimacy. And until we see that, we'll continually be scurrying around to be the dutiful husband, to be the responsible son or daughter. Don't you see all I do for you, God? Instead of being drawn into His forgiving embrace, We're constantly itemizing our service. Here's what I've done. Aren't you proud of me, God? Don't you love me more? What do you want of those that you love? You want all of them, right? You want more of them. You want intimacy. You want trust. When Jesus says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, it's not a critique. It's a request It's an invitation to intimacy, and we said a few weeks ago that the word that underlines this word holy, or as it's translated in some translations, perfect, is really best translated as whole, as integrated, that we're relating with God not on the basis of our pretense, of our masks, of our false selves, but in our true selves that across your entire person, that you know who you are and what you were made for, that you are made for intimacy with God. Blessed, then, are the pure in heart. Blessed are the ones who know themselves, all of themselves, and come to God with all of who they are. Blessed are the pure in heart doesn't mean those with the greatest intensity, the most passion, but those who are honest, those who are integrated, Those who have harmony across their personality, those who see their brokenness and their neediness as a vital part of who they are, not something to hide. Instead of hiding from God because of your nakedness, fashioning fig leaves, presenting your best self, the pure in heart, the whole person meets with God in their nakedness, in their brokenness, in their seeking in their realization that they'll never be the perfect person that they want to be. The goal then is not greater and greater effort, but it's more and more unveiling. It's more and more openness. It's more and more honesty with God. And then grace replaces shame. We learn to accept and even embrace our imperfections because they become the gateway through which we meet God. And this provides space for not shame, but self-acceptance and self-compassion rather than constant self-recrimination and even disappointment in ourselves. Your spirituality is defined not first of all by how well you imitate Jesus, but how fully you abide In Him and His provision to cover you, how completely you rest in His presence. A few years ago, Katie and I went to see a marriage counselor, and she was great. And she was able to press in on some things that we hadn't seen, or at least I hadn't seen. Um, But she referenced a few times one of her only contact points with Christianity. She wasn't a Christian counselor, and it was at a psychology conference that just happened to be held in a church. And it was a building with this very large, very ornate crucifix behind the the pulpit. And um, she was trying to sort of empathize with our dutiful pietism that we were trying so hard. And she was trying to kind of give us, let us down and tell us that it's okay to be who we are, to be our imperfect selves, and that that would actually help our marriage. And she kept recalling this image of the cross, and she was saying, you know, how could anyone live up to that? And her impression of Christianity was people constantly trying to live up to an impossible standard. Her image of Christianity, what she saw as the heart of Christianity, was live up to this, not this is who God is. The cross represents the character, the intrinsic love of God. Live up to this was hers, and I'm not sure that her grasp of Christianity was all that different than rank-and-file Christians, that God stands far off, and He is inviting us to live up to Him rather than, where are you? Where have you gone? I miss you. Come back to me. Let me cover your nakedness. When we say seeking, friends, it's not seeking simply to be better people. By God's grace, as the Spirit inhabits each of us individually and us as a church, it changes us from the inside out. And insofar as we abide in Christ, it's almost that we can't help but change. We want to follow, we want to pursue. But seeking is not, first of all, seeking to be better, but it's to live close to the cross. It's to live close to Jesus, to be more comfortable with our imperfections, to be less afraid and less embarrassed by our failure, to be more whole, more alive unto our need for grace. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that You would indeed help us to breathe underwater, that You would let us breathe by Your grace. Father, I pray that as we experience shame and we interpret it as appropriate guilt, I pray that we would take it out and shoot it. Lord, I pray that You would put to death shame in this congregation, shame in our families, shame in ourselves as individuals. Father, let us rest upon the grace that is present in Your love and present in Your Son and His work for us. Lord, I pray that we would live into that grace as a church, that we would seek You with all of our hearts, but it would be by Your power, by Your strengthening, by Your invitation, not by ours, by our strength. Lord, I pray that you would change us as a church, that you would revitalize us, that you would make us more alive unto grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.